Hi, my name is Lenore Skenazy, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Every parent wants to be the best mom or dad they can be. Moms and dads love their kids and desperately want them to succeed. But what if the way we are raising our kids is hurting them more than helping them? Lenore Skenazy's approach to parenting earned her the title America's Worst Mom. Most of us would have been devastated, but not Lenore. She used it as a springboard to start the free range movement with a goal of helping overprotective parents give their kids back their childhood. Whether you're a parent or not, you'll love listening and learning from Lenore. She's a lot of fun. Lenore Skenazy, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thank you. I'm happy to be over tribing with you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you spending some time with us. You know, being a parent is probably the most important thing in my life, or at least one of the most important things in my life. And I'm sure you'd say the same thing. You have two kids. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I'm knocking wood. Yes, I do. <laughs> How old are they now? Oh my God, they're so old, it doesn't matter. They're in their 20s. Okay, yeah. So you and I might be about the same age because my kids range from 20 to 27. We have four kids. My wife and I love them to death. And being a parent and a good parent is something that we put a huge priority on. And so that's why when I read your story about being declared nationally as the world's worst mom, I, I had to learn more. So tell us, how do you get that label? What led to that? Oh, well, I started out only as America's worst mom and then gradually assumed the crown for the entire world. But it was quite simple to get this. I'm a reporter by trade and a newspaper columnist. And when our son was nine, our younger son was nine, he started asking me and my husband if we would take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home by subway, because that's how we get around here in New York City. He'd been on the subway only a million times before that. And so we said yes. You never hear my husband as America's Worst Dad. But anyways, we said yes. I took him to Bloomingdale's, which is a fancy schmancy department store, one sunny Sunday. And I told him today was the day and I let him go and I went home another direction. And he had to take the subway and then he had to take a bus and he came home and he was so proud, so thrilled that he had done it on his own. He'd even gotten a little lost in the subway station, talked to a stranger, got himself turned around, came home. and. I wrote about it, you know, because it was something to write about when I had nothing to write about. So I wrote why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And two days later, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR. And that's when I got the nickname America's Worst Mom because everybody hated me for letting him take the subway. Well, you would think that people might be proud of your son, that he wanted to take this step. He was trying was to- proud of my son. <laughs> you were right, because he wanted okay. to show some independence. He wanted to do yeah. something on his own. And instead, you get labeled that. And I guess it's because people thought it was super dangerous to let your son ride the subway in New York City. Is the subway where you dropped him off, is this a scary part of town? Did I mention that it's Bloomingdale? which is like the fanciest department store, one of the fanciest department stores. And it was a Sunday. To me, I'm not a person who wants my kids to be hurt, <laughs> right? <laughs> I certainly don't want them, you know, thrown on the subway tracks. I don't want anything terrible happen to them. So my decision was based in reality. And I think the reason it was so castigated, or I was so castigated, is because most people don't live in New York City. 
And when you think of the subways, you think of what you've seen in the media, you know, a million Law and Order episodes and, you know, the Will Smith movies and uh, Ghostbusters, you know, everything that shows the subways in the movies is way scarier and more exciting than the humdrum boredom of waiting for your subway to come and getting on it and taking a few stops and getting off. So it's probably something like riding your bike to the library or something equivalent in yes. the suburbs was something that your kid wanted to do on his own. Now, out of this big uproar, you launched a movement called the Free Range Movement. And your book is called Free Range Kids, and you're at Twitter handles Free Range. I mean, it seems like everything you do is built around that identity. What is it you're trying to do with Free Range? What's the message that you're trying to give parents? Oh, thanks for asking. So first of all, yes, after I let my son ride the subway and everybody started going crazy, I started a blog and I called it Free Range Kids. And the slogan, which I still stand by, is our children are smarter and safer than our culture gives them credit for. And the whole point that I've been trying to make, and Free Range Kids was just a cute moniker, and we think of how mean we were to chickens keeping them in their little coops, and then we finally realized, like, why don't we let them at least, you know, peck outside the coop a little bit and have a little bit of a life? And yet, remember, even Free Range Chickens, there's a fence. It's just a wider area that they're allowed to roam in. And what I was just thinking of, and if you are at all my age or anybody basically over 35, when I was a kid... I had some freedom. We didn't call it free range kids. We didn't call it feral kids. We just called it childhood. And I'm sure at some point you would get on your bike or walk to school or ride your bike to a friend's house, go outside on a sunny Saturday morning and come home when the streetlights were on. And your parents weren't considered horrible, neglectful, devil may care jerks, right? Well, I experienced that as a kid. I mean, I went out and rode my bike and like you said, streetlights came on or there were other indicators of things that you were supposed to know that at this time, this event, you're supposed to check in with mom or dad. Now, we'd even have cell phones back then. So you would think that with the cell phones now in the world, that that might mean that we give our kids more latitude, more freedom, because we do have access to them, at least those that do have phones. But somehow it's gone the other way. When we have more opportunities through technology to stay connected with them, our kids have have less and less freedom. So why is that? Why did that change? What happened there that caused America's parents to freak out right. and be worried that their kids were, you know, maybe going to be harmed or abducted or whatever? What caused it? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, really, you know, from 30,000 feet up, the question is, how did we get to the point where we only see childhood through the lens of what could go terribly wrong? Well, that's a great way of putting it. Right. And I keep coming up with different ways to put it. Now I call it worst first thinking. The reason I think the story of the subway resonated so far and wide is because at some point in any conversation about why would I let my kid do anything without me there? And I'd say, well, I trusted him and I trusted my city and, you know, I trusted strangers. There'd be a pause. And then the interviewer would ask, yeah, great. But how would you have felt if he never came home? That's like the gotcha question, right? It is totally the gotcha question. And you know what? It's not a question is what it took me a long time to realize. It is just the gotcha. Because really what made me so controversial was not thinking that way. And while your mom let you ride your bike or walk to school or play outside or go to the ball fields without tormenting herself before she did that, thinking like, but what if he never came home? How would I feel? I would never forgive myself. It would be so horrible. There'd be, you know, there'd be this gaping wound in my life for the rest of my life. Our parents didn't think that way. And somehow I don't think that way either. And that is blasphemous. Now, really, the touchstone of our era is to imagine the worst case scenario all the time. And we think about, you know, like whether you let your kid wait at the bus stop, oh, they could be kidnapped. You know, if they get a D, they'll never go to college. <laughs> if they eat a non-organic grape, they're going to have cancer. I mean, it's it's like everything is seen that way. So I was interviewing, actually, I guess the guy was interviewing me once, but then we started talking just like us in suburban Kentucky. And he was telling me that he let his daughter, who was 12, walk two houses down to her friend's house. Okay, two houses down, suburban Kentucky, 12 years old, seems fine. But when the play date, which we never called them that either, when the play date was over, the other kid's mom walked his daughter home. 
And I think that's because of this worst case scenario. It's like, it's probably fine. It's going to take 15 seconds. You know, the likelihood of somebody being right outside, right then waiting for your kid to walk outside with the white van, no windows and the duct tape and the zip ties, which I don't even know how to use a zip tie, but somehow (laughs) these guys all have them and they're ready to use them on your kid. So it's not worth the risk. Right. So I'll walk her home. So that requires a really new way of thinking, which is to almost will yourself to imagine something horrific happening and take action. And that's what interests me. How did that happen? How did we get to the point where my mom stayed at home, mom, stayed at home, mom. She wanted me to be safe and happy, you know, stayed at home to make sure that my childhood was as good as could be. And yet let me walk to school at age five. And now, even if you're working two jobs, you're supposed to drive your kid to the bus stop, wait there, make sure that they successfully transferred to the bus and no raindrop got on them and no man grabbed them and nobody bullied them and they weren't distressed or cold or needing a snack and they got onto the bus and then that was a good one. Safe for 20 seconds. Then you could go to work. So it's such a completely new paradigm, a word I hate because there's that silent G, but it's just a new way of looking at childhood that feels instinctual because everybody's doing it, but it's not. And the reason we know it's not is because it wasn't instinctual for your mom or my mom. So it's new. Right. Did parents all of a sudden become irresponsible? Did parents not love their kids before and now we really love them? (laughs) And of course that's not true, right? And I want to talk more in a second about what you just said about the hyper-protection because I think there's probably a cost to that, that worst first thinking that we don't think too much about. But before we get there, I just want to go back and say that what I had remembered in elementary school were missing kids' faces on Uh. our milk cartons, cartons, right? So you would have a milk carton at school and you'd sit there at lunch and then you would look at kids' faces (laughs) that were gone. You're never going to see them again, right? And so I guess the idea that they were abducted, right? And so in 1979, Eaton Pats was in New York City and did something similar, I think, to what you allowed your son to do. And that is that he went to a bus stop. It turned out that he was abducted and found out later, many, many years later, that he had been killed that same day. Not long after that, a few years, Adam Walsh, who was six years old, he died of abduction. And his father, John Walsh, he started the show America's Most Wanted and made a big deal about all these kids who are being abducted. And there became this narrative that the streets of the world, whether it's suburban Kentucky or New York City or where I am, you know, it's not safe. There's these people, like you said, in a white van all looking for your kids. And do you think that changed the narrative that parents grew up in? How much more can I nod? <laughs> you know, I don't think I can nod more without being shaken, middle-aged lady syndrome. Yes. So that was a huge shift in our culture. There's a book actually about the history of kidnapping in America. What a cheerful book by a woman named Paula Fast, she's a professor at Berkeley, historian. And she said that the Aton kidnapping, when Aton, who was six years old in 1979, as you mentioned, disappeared from his bus stop, the original working assumption, if not on the part of the police, at least on the part of the public and the press, was that he had been taken by some lovelorn woman to raise as her own child, some woman who desperately wanted, you know, a kid to raise of her own. He's angelic. He's blonde. I'll take him. And it took about a month before they started dripping out like, well, maybe it wasn't a woman. Really? Well, maybe it was a guy. Well, why would a guy want to get? Well, weirdly enough, And the idea of sexual predators had not colonized our brains. In fact, when it came up, it was so thrilling. Paula Fast likens it to a roller coaster ride. You're terrified, but you love it. And there's something so compelling about being so upset and so outraged and so sorrowful and also slightly titillated. You know, it's just human nature. We're talking about sex and nobody wants to think about this. But when you do, it is so compelling that the press realized, oh, my God, here's a story that really sells. And then the sadder thing is that Adam Walsh is taken and it's another horrible story. And these are two gut-wrenching horrifying parents' worst nightmare stories. But then Adam's case was made into a miniseries and it broke all ratings records. That's when TV executives sit up and take notice, right? It's not that they want to save the world. It's not that they're bad or good, but they are definitely trying to make money. And if you can compel people to watch television, the more eyeballs you get for the longer time you get, the more money you get. 
And so not only was that happening, the miniseries, and then came the milk cartons, but it was also the birth of cable television at that same time. And until then, you didn't have a 24-hour news network that you had to fill with something compelling enough to keep it on in the background. But it turns out that the kidnapping of a white middle-class or upper-middle-class child is exactly that. It is glue. I mean, if you don't have, you know, a congressional hearing or a war, this is the story that will keep viewers watching. And that's why we watched the John Bonet Ramsey story for, I think, a decade or something like that. And so between seeing it on television, there's studies that show like when you see something happening on TV, each time registers as a separate incident, even if you're seeing the same story again and again, like even with the Twin Towers falling, every time it just ratchets up your anger and your sorrow. And so you have that happening and then the milk cartons bring it into your home, right? And the thing about the pictures of the kids on the milk cartons is those were missing children, but the vast majority of missing children are runaways or were taken in divorce custodial disputes. They were not children snatched off their bikes or snatched from the subway. But the average person looking at that picture thinks that it was an abduction. I think it was slightly deliberately misleading to call attention to the problem of missing kids without explaining that most of that had to do with divorce. Well, I think that you put your finger on a lot of stuff there. I mean, it seems like you're saying there might be a profit motive and that's a little crass, but there might be a profit motive in keeping people afraid. We see that now in social media where social media companies want people to be afraid. They want anxiety. So people stay on their platforms to make more money. And you're saying that's not new, that that existed for a long time. And so as cable news media comes out, that if they have these, you know, bleeds, it leads. And Adam Walsh was abducted in Hollywood, Florida from the mall. And so you have all these parents think, I go to the mall and my kid could be next. And so they lock down. They want to protect their kids. Kids need to stay in. They can't go out and wander on their own. And then my theory is that's how kids sports become so big because they're locked in their home. And now parents are like, well, I've got to do something with them. So instead of letting them go play like I did with your friends in the neighborhood somewhere, what you do now is you get coaches, you get adults to supervise them in their leagues, their sports, their dance competitions, music, whatever it is they're into, but it's all adult supervised instead of kids working it out on their own. And they miss out on so much of life. And you're right. The vast majority of kids who are missing, something happens to a kid. The vast majority is from someone they know. And yet we have parents today who have never heard of of either of the young boys that we've been talking about who are abducted, and yet their view of parenting has been shaped by it in some way. So it seems like there's a cost to kids who grow up under constant adult, parent, teacher, coach, supervision. What are some of those costs that we maybe don't pay as much attention to? We're so worried about the cost of them being physically hurt or abducted, but we don't pay attention to the other costs. What are some of those costs? Well, I'm going to flip this around. First of all, I love everything that you just said. It's a pleasure to listen to you. (laughs) Just have to say, you get it. In terms of what are the costs? Well, let me ask you about you said that you used to play as a kid, right? You would go out on your bike or whatever. And so was that a stupid waste of time? Did you learn anything during that time? Well, I learned a lot of things, I think. I mean, one thing I learned is responsibility. Like I had to be home at a certain time because there were consequences if I didn't show up for Mm -hmm. dinner or when the streetlights came on. And I learned how to figure things out with my peers, right? We would get an argument about our baseball game or a kickball game or whatever it is we were doing. And I learned to entertain myself. I didn't have a phone or anything. And I had figured out a way to, you know, stay engaged with the world. So that's what comes to my mind that I learned. And were you always with kids exactly your age? Oh, no. Not too much older, but depending Mm -hmm. on what we were doing, there was probably a three or four year difference between the youngest and the oldest, sometimes a little bit more, depending on if younger brothers came around, that kind of thing. Well, that's what I'd say is missing now. I mean, if you have a game that's organized by adults, the first thing to go is the age differential, right? I mean, you're going to be with the other seven-year-olds at Little League or at lacrosse or whatever. And then... Secondly, you don't have to figure out anything as the seven-year-old. The coach is going to tell you, you know, what position you're playing and when the game starts and when the game ends, and they're going to make the teams and they're going to decide, you know, was that a foul or fair ball? I mean, so really you don't have a chance to argue anything, you know, and in a way that's considered the advantage of the organized sport. So nobody's feelings will get hurt. There's somebody or there's an adult who's always fair, who's doing these things, but 
I'm not against little league and I had my kids in all sorts of sports, but I also tried to give them some free time when they weren't in an adult organized activity. And the reason is that when adults and kids are together, the adults are the adults and the kids are the kids, but it's only when adults aren't there that the kids become the adults, right? They have to, they have to figure out teams that are fair enough that everyone will keep playing. And they have to make sure that they include your little brother. Otherwise you have to leave and we lose our best pitcher or whatever. So there's all these calculations, negotiations, compromise, frustrations that they deal with. And the theory is that mother nature put the drive to play into kids so that they would go through all the hard stuff that they have to go through before they get to the fun. You know, you're going to take your ball. No, don't take your ball. We'll let you go first. Okay, but that's not fair. He got first. All right. So we'll, all that stuff that to an adult sounds like bickering, because it is, <laughs> right, turns out to be really valuable. That turns out to be the fiber, right? And what parents are trying to get to and what adults are trying to get to is like, that's a waste of time. Let's just, I'll make the teams. Count off by twos. Okay, I'm going to say when this game starts. And they're mistaking the end result for what is important about play. And really what's important about play is getting it to happen and keeping it happening and how it morphs as it happens. Because you also want kids to learn how to pivot and change and be creative. And part of that is, this is so boring. Let's play it with only our pinkies, you know, or we don't have even teams. How about I play on both teams? I mean, just it's all the solutions that you're always coming up with just to make the fun happen. And if the fun is happening like Chuck E. Cheese, just by you showing up and somebody giving you tokens, that's a less enriched experience, even though to parents, it looks like the ultimate because we've given them just the fun part. It's like giving kids just the frosting for dinner. Isn't that great? I mean, I would like that. But there's probably something missing. Well, I think one of the things that you're putting your finger on is that the goal of parenting seems to have changed because I thought my responsibility for my kids, and I know my mom would definitely say this about raising me, was to raise an independent adult. But it seems as if parents almost want their kids to be more dependent upon them as if it provides some sort of psychological or emotional need. And I'm not thinking of any one person. I'm just thinking as a culture, I don't know if we're raising independent adults because if we are, then we want them to experience all the things that you were just talking about. The quick story is that I had some friends who were in town and they're kind of a friend of a friend, honestly. And they were here visiting their college kids. It was parents weekend, something like that. And everybody was meeting up at one of the bars downtown. And so these adults went down to meet their kids. It was late at night. And most of the adults left, but one of the dads stayed and sat kind of over in the corner of the bar and just watched to make sure the kids were going to be okay for the rest of the evening because it was a little, you know, a little spicy or chippy in the bar. And I heard that and I thought, hang on a second, you've got 21, 22-year-old kids who are off on their own, living out of state, going to college, but you as a parent feel like you need to stay there to keep an eye on them for this one Saturday night or whatever it was. And I just thought, what has happened? We have lost our collective mind. Now, I know that parent did it because they love their kid, but it seems like we've changed the goal of what parenting is. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so many things to say there. You think we've lost our mind. I think we've lost our faith. Hmm. That's interesting. I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll go back to how I don't blame helicopter parents. So one of the things I did a television show that nobody watched and now it's on YouTube and it's called World's Worst Mom. How appropriate. And what it was is the producers found me 13 families where the parents were just so crazed with worry. A mom who fed her 10-year-old in his mouth, right? A mom who let her son get a skateboard so long as he stood on it on the grass and didn't move, right? And a mom who would take her daughter into the ladies' room if she had to go to the bathroom and then stand in the stall with her so she wouldn't be molested by anybody. So it's just like over-the-top families. And then trying to recreate that here, I met up with a family in Queens, where I live, um, Queens, New York, and it's not all urban here. This was sort of a less urban part of the city. And the dad there had grown up in New Mexico with a twin brother, and they used to ride their horses bareback in the gullies. I can't even imagine this because I grew up in the suburbs, but bareback horse riding, you can imagine everybody, the, the mane's flying, the hair is flying, that's their childhood, you know, there's rocks tumbling, whatever it is it was pretty free range. So here he is, the dad now of a 12-year-old son 
and a 10-year-old girl, and he won't let them do anything on their own, including walk to or from the local school. And yet parents don't like being that nervous. It's not fun. And so when I said, hey, does anybody want my services? I'll come and sit with you while we send your kids outside. He and his wife, who I think was a little more fed up, called me over. And what we did is we decided what would be good. Well, there's a grocery store three blocks away. Why don't they go and get juice? So I sit with the parents and the dad is like this, but it's okay. You know, and they keep looking like, are the kids coming back yet? Are the kids coming back yet? And, you know, the kids come back like 15 minutes later and they got the juice and it's a little celebration. Hooray, they got the juice. So fast forward six months later, I check in with them. How is everything going? And he said, it's amazing. You know, my kid not only comes home by himself from school, but sometimes he stops at the park and he goes and he plays baseball with his friends or basketball. I can't remember. And he said when he was home in New Mexico with his cousin, who's a pastor, he said, I don't even understand what's changed about me, but I feel so much better, so much more confident. And my kids are happier. What is it? you know, ever since this little intervention. And the pastor said something good. He said, you were always a man of faith in God, but now you have faith in your children. And that's what it was. So the reason I'm not against helicopter parents and even that poor guy sitting in the corner while his 22-year-old drank a beer is we've had the faith leached out of us. We've been told that our kids are in danger waiting at the bus stop, that you have to watch the whole soccer practice or your kids will feel bereft that if you're not trick-or-treating with them, they're going to be molested, killed, or poisoned, that they should do a trunk-or-treat instead so that they're never knocking on any stranger's door and never interact with a person that you haven't personally background-checked and photographed and you know put a drone over their house. So when parents are told that their job is to be constantly in touch and supervising and assisting and intervening in their child's lives, and in fact, There are consequences if they don't. I mean, I talk to the parents who get investigated for child neglect because they let their kids play in the front yard. So when the society forces us to be helicopter parents, it makes us see all the stuff that our kids are doing that isn't optimal. You know, normally a parent wouldn't be with the frat boys at a bar when they're getting drunk. And so you don't see it. And then it goes on and the kids learn from it. I got so drunk last night. It was horrible. I threw up. And you don't normally see your kids arguing with each other about, you know, whether the ball is in or out. I'll decide. You don't see the kid hitting the other kid over the head with the little toy shovel because they're allowed some free time. When we're with our kids, it's inevitable that we want to intervene because we see all the stuff that they're doing not as well as us, not as smart, not as safely as us. So I'm mad a society that has made us constantly spend every single breathing moment either with our kids or somehow outsourcing, you know, another adult to watch our kids or surveilling them from afar. But this constant supervision is why we're constantly intervening. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families.
I appreciate your book because one of the things that you do as you're talking about free range parenting is that you don't blame the parents. I mean, I'm not saying that you never critique or criticize parenting, but you don't walk away from the book as a parent thinking I'm failing. You more look and say, how am I being influenced by society and culture and the narrative and the media? And is this what I want for my kid? Is this what I want to do? Because some parents, like you said, are going over the top. I read a few years ago, you probably saw it too, the dean of Stanford, a woman mm-hmm. was talking about how much parents are trying to interfere with their kids' college entrance requirements, meeting those, writing the essays, all that kind of stuff. And here's what she said. Her name is Julie Leithcott Hames. I think I hope I pronounce it right. Mm-hmm. But she says, we want so badly to help them by shepherding them from milestone to milestone and by shielding them from failure and pain, but overhelping causes harm. And I think if a parent could see that overhelping your kid, it really produces immaturity and anxiety, a lack of confidence. And I just don't think parents see that part of it. And I think that's part of what your book does is says, hey, you can trust your kids and there will be so many benefits from doing that and letting them explore and experience a little bit of life without you around them all the time. So you mentioned helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting. Are those terms that you use, you find helpful? Do people know what they mean? Do you mind unpacking those just a little bit for us in case people don't know what they mean? Yeah, I'll unpack them and then I'll give my solution to the problem. So helicopter parenting, I don't know when the term began, but it's definitely been in the 2000s. And it's the idea that you're sort of hovering over your kid and snowplow parenting is the idea that you're clearing the path for them. And In Canada, I call it curling parenting because it's the same idea. You're just sweeping away all obstacles or even tiny little specks of ice. But all those are once again blaming the parent for a social norm that you can barely buck, right? I mean, if all the other parents are waiting with their kids at the bus stop, you not waiting with your kid can look like you're the jerk who's like freeloading, right? Or if you don't want to sit at the soccer game, you know, how come you're not there, Mrs. Ganesi? Your son is in the game. So It feels like all those terms only make people feel ashamed and angry. And so I don't see a real upside to them, although I'm sure I've used them plenty myself. The thing that is true is that you cannot be a non-helicopter parent in a helicopter parenting society unless it's a collective action, unless there's some other people who believe as you do or who are trying as you are to step back a little. So Five years ago, two really smart people came to me, a guy named Dan Shuckman, who was chairman of a group called FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus, and Professor Jonathan Haidt, who is at NYU, and he's written a bunch of books, but the most famous is called The Coddling of the American Mind, which I bet you've read. He wrote you the introduction or the foreword to your... Well, he wrote the foreword because a couple of years ago, you know, five years ago, he and John and Dan were seeing was that young people coming to college seemed fragile. They seemed easily hurt and sort of unable to solve some basic, simple problems on their own, an argument with a roommate, a mouse in the dorm. The mental health services on campus were being overwhelmed. And I believe in seeking help when you need it. So I'm not against that. But I also feel bad that so many kids felt bad enough that they thought that they needed, you know, professional help. And the big thing that they noticed is that when somebody felt uncomfortable, including when there was somebody coming on campus who was giving a speech and they were too far to the right or too far to the left, instead of going and raising your hand and saying, excuse me, I read the opposite, you know, and engaging or avoiding the speech because you don't like the guy and you think he's a jerk. Instead of either of those sort of active decisions, they were claiming to be unsafe and insisting that the person not come or needing a trigger warning on a book. And the idea is like, when you're uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean you're unsafe. Dan and John were saying like, this is not something that happens suddenly when kids are 18 years old, that they start feeling fragile and like any encounter that is not pleasant and easy is too much for them to bear. It must be starting younger. Who is countering a culture that is making children fragile? And that's when they came to me. And they said, let's start a nonprofit together. And I said, well, first I said no, because I didn't think I could run a nonprofit, which is true. Thank God now we have an executive director. But I said, the other thing is that we have to devote ourselves to changing behavior because simply changing minds doesn't help. I mean, it helps a little, but if you want to be, if Keith decides he's going to send his kids, you know, to play in the park and there's nobody there for them to play with, 
And somebody's calling 911 because they saw an escaped child out there. And that happens. Yeah, it does happen, unfortunately. You know, you can't let your kids have this kind of freedom. So we have to figure out a way to make this a group effort on the part of parents and renormalize the idea of giving kids some independence. And so we started the nonprofit called Let Grow. And that's where you'll find me most of the time. Free Range Kids usually says, why don't you go over to Let Grow? Because that's where I'm blogging more. We have a Let Grow Twitter feed. Anyways, everything is Let Grow, Let Grow. So Let Grow has two school initiatives that we think are really going to change things. And we've seen some evidence of it so far, but not enough. One is that if a school assigns the Let Grow project, things really change. The project is this. Kids get a homework assignment. Look, mom, it says, I have to do something by myself without my parents. And all the parents are getting that same letter. And what age are the kids? K through 12, any age. It's actually not an assignment per se. There's a list of potential things you could do, but it is so tiny compared to the number of things you can really do. You know, walk the dog, make dinner, go visit grandma, ride your bike, you know, volunteer. There are things that you do preferably either difficult things in the house that you've never done, you know, make a whole meal or something like that, or outside the house is even better. But it sounds like you're trying to give parents permission to do this, right? You're trying to say, this is okay. The school said to do this and therefore it takes the pressure off of them to hyper monitor their child. Exactly that. I love it. It's so great. It's free. All our materials are free. And it's not only takes the pressure off, it puts the pressure on, (laughs) right? Everybody's doing it. The school says you have to. There's a little note home. You know, we provide all this stuff that says why it's good for kids to have some independence. And then the kids start comparing notes. Oh, I got to go get ice cream. You're kidding. I got to rake the leaves. My favorite story about this is that there was one school that was doing this. Actually, one whole district with seven schools was doing it. And then the principal from one of the schools sent me an email she'd gotten from a friend in another district showing her the Let Grow project that her son had done. And it was on Facebook bragging, my kid did, I can't remember what, I think it was actually raking the leaves. And I said, that's good. She said, no, that's not my school. They saw on Facebook that all these kids were doing independent things. And the parents at the other school started complaining, hey, how come our kids aren't? (laughs) And I really feel like it is something that is ready to go viral and it has in the neighborhoods where it's begun, but it hasn't begun in most neighborhoods. So the reason I go on podcasts like yours is to hope that anybody hearing this, especially if you have a kid in school, you're a teacher, a principal, a guidance counselor, a psychologist, whatever, suggest that the school try the Let Grow Project. Because I said, everything's free and it's all laid out there. And We've seen amazing things happen. Actually, one seventh grader said she finally convinced her mom to let her walk to church one day by herself. And she said she was so proud because it was such a grown-up thing and she felt great. And after that, she did all sorts of other things. She got her ears pierced and she tried out for the swim team. But what she said was so interesting. She said it changed her relationship with her parents because they started seeing her as more mature and ready and grown up and, you know, a girl in the world. And she started understanding her parents' life because she had younger sisters and she saw how boring and how much time it takes to always be going to every activity expected to be there. And she said she and her parents started arguing less and understanding each other more. And I think it's because kids don't want to be underestimated, right? And once you let them do things on their own, you get confident in them and then they rise to the occasion and It just changes everything for the better. Parents don't feel like they're unnecessary or unimportant. It feels like they've done a good job. So I like that because, you know, parents love their kids. Every parent, except for a few psychos in the world, love their kid and want the best for them. They're motivated to do what's best for their kids. And they're doing what they're doing because they think that's the right thing to do. And so you're giving them an alternative to show them that maybe if you love your kids, you want to give them appropriate levels of freedom, always increasing appropriate to their age so that they get to expand their wings. They get to make choices. They get to mature and develop some of these skills. But you have to want 
your kids to grow up and be independent of you. And for whatever reason, I don't know exactly why, if it's in the psychological nature of parenting right now or if it's our culture, but we're afraid to let our kids grow up. So in the past, kids got to do more things. They got to mature. They got to take leadership responsibilities. And now we're saying kids don't really grow up until, what, they're 26, 27. We have a new category called adultolescence. Oh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> you haven't heard that one? Oh, yeah, it's around these adults who at least – in the past, they would have thought of an adult, 23, 24, 25, 27, but they're adolescents because they're still being treated as adolescents, even in what you would think of in the past as adulthood. And you mentioned in your book some stories about some people in the past who took on great responsibility at a young age, Herman Melville, Mark Twain. You even talk about Sesame Street, an adults-only version of Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Could you unpack just a little bit about how much that's changed in the leadership responsibilities that that people who are teenagers or even younger in the past had that we would never even dream of giving them today? Oh, sure. I mean, the weirdest thing is that in the colonial era, I think children age six, if you were really poor, that's the age that you sent them out to be servants in another family. So they weren't bumbling little idiots. They were, you know, kids were expected to sweep and clean and be ordered around by somebody. But Ben Franklin, I think, was 10 or 12 when his dad walked him around. I think he actually started out in Boston and ended up in Philly. You know, do you want to be a candle maker? Do you want to be a furniture maker? Because you better start figuring something out because I can't keep paying for your food when you're 12 and you should be earning your own keep. Mark Twain. I mean, basically, we're using these names, but that's just because those are the only people's names we know from back then. But everybody was apprenticing. In medieval England, they had a great program, not a program, but it was just a thing that everybody did, which was when your kids got to be 10, 11, 12, you generally sent them to live with another family. And I think that's so great because you know that when your kid is in another person's house, that's when they put their dish in the sink. And that's when they say, thank you very much for dinner. That was delicious. <laughs> right. And then the kid who's staying at your place also says, mm, thank you so much, Lenore. That was a delicious supper. So there's been a recognition throughout history that certainly by the time you're hitting puberty, you're ready to start becoming part of the adult world. That's what puberty was. I mean, there's the bar mitzvah when you're 13 in the Jewish tradition. And at seven, there's confirmation in Catholicism. And so you realize there's sometime between seven when you start becoming accountable for your thoughts and actions to 11, 12, 13, when you become ready for even more responsibility and babysitting and helping out at a real business. And instead, our culture now, I mean, even the American Academy of Pediatrics said that no child should cross the street until they're 10. (laughs) I know, but it's like you can laugh, except it's you and me laughing, and it's the American Academy of Pediatrics who gets to say 10. And so I feel like what has happened is our culture has decided to undermine our belief that our kids can do anything safely or successfully without us. And then we've built a culture around that belief to the point where, you know, why are you letting a nine-year-old cross the street? Shouldn't they be 10? And you know, we try to change the laws in states, and I'll tell you about that in a second, but I was just looking up the law in Connecticut, or at least the guidelines from Child Protective Services are that no child should ever be alone until age 12 and should never supervise a younger sibling until 15. And I'm thinking 15 is, I think, the age that my great-grandmother had my grandmother, (laughs) you know? So there's a disconnect between what kids are literally capable of doing, you know, developmentally capable of doing and what we let them do. And and just going back to one earlier point, which is the idea that parents today love their kids, but don't want them to mature or grow independent. I don't know that they don't want them to grow independent, but I do know that if you don't ever let a parent see how great it is when your kid does ride around the block or does run an errand for you or does babysit, you have no idea how great that feels. All you know is it feels great to be with them and save them. But to realize like, oh my God, look at what she did. She's capable or, oh, I got to go out and, you know, run an errand for an hour or go to the thrift shops for an hour. My favorite thing while my kids are home. If you don't ever feel it and never see it, how do you know how great it is? So when our society says you can never leave your kids alone, you never know how wonderful it feels to realize that they are growing independent. Well, I think you said it better than I did because you're right. I do think parents want their kids to be independent at some point. But 
They never know when it is. Right? right. And you have to gradually let that go. I mean, even from when they're toddlers all the way to they are ready to go to college or whatever it is they're going to do in life and move out of the house, that it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen when they turn 18 or 16 or whatever the magic number is out there for you. Every month, every season, quarter, year, you've got to turn more and more responsibility over to your child. And the failure to do that has a cost that is unseen. Oftentimes, the only thing parents seem to care about is the physical health. And yeah, we don't want our kids to be hurt and we don't want them to be abducted or anything like that, but there are other costs along the way. I love what you're doing about trying to create a culture where it's good and healthy, it's praised, not frowned upon to give your kids more responsibility. And you mentioned that you are doing that through the schools and your let grow plan, but you're also doing it through legislatures, right? I mean, I think you're trying to affect laws in states. And first, before you tell us how you're doing that, can you tell us why that that's important. Why would it matter state laws? Why does that matter to anybody about parenting? I mean, yeah. So for two reasons. So right now in most of the states, there are neglect laws that say something like parents should provide proper supervision. And I agree, right. but you and I, and everybody else has a different idea of exactly what that entails. And what we'd like it to be is up to the parent, right? So if you don't want to let your kid ride her bike alone until she's 13, 14, 15. Okay. But if I think my kid is ready at six, seven, or eight, it should be up to me unless I am putting my child in obvious, serious, and likely danger. I don't want kids in danger. And so that should be the threshold for anything below that is neglect. But right now, because it has become so abnormal, as we were just discussing, to see a kid walking by himself to the park or playing outside, sometimes passers-by see that kid and call 911 because they've been told if you see something, say something, and nobody has ever specified what that something is. And so I am on the receiving end of frantic calls from parents who have gotten a call against them because they let their kid do one of these things, play outside, walk to school, um, stay home alone briefly. And so I gave a speech about this. You know, I'm always giving speeches about this. But this time, God love him, one guy heard me saying, you know, we have to change the culture. And that also means changing the laws so that parents are allowed to parent unless they're doing something egregiously wrong. And so he heard this and he worked with an organization called Libertas Utah. I think it might have been the head of Libertas Utah. And he took this idea home and found a Utah senator willing to sponsor what was then called a free range parenting law. And the law passed with not only flying colors, but it was unanimous. It passed in the House and the Senate in Utah, and that was in 2018. And that became the first state with a free-range parenting law. There was one little problem with the law, and it's still fine the way it stands. But it did say parents who have provided everything for their child, you know, given their child enough whatever, can let their kids do blah, blah, blah. Well, what if you don't have a lot of whatever? What if you are poor? We don't want poverty to be mistaken for neglect either, right? Say you're a single mom, you're working two jobs, and you can't be home at three o'clock in the afternoon to stand at the bus stop. Some schools make you wait at the bus stop to take your child home. I heard from one mom who had to wave in the window when the child was let off at the end of her driveway. So what if you're stretched thin and you know that actually your nine-year-old can come home and even take care of her five-year-old sister for two hours before you come home from job number two. Well, that shouldn't be considered neglect either, right? And so now our new laws say that poverty can't be mistaken for neglect either. Unless you're putting your kid in obvious serious and likely danger, it's not neglect. It's called making it work. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you pointed that out because I was thinking earlier in our conversation that when we're talking about snowplow parenting, helicopter parenting, and this kind of overprotective parenting, that the people who are in a no-win situation there are people who are working multiple jobs, who are doing their best to make it work for their family, and they can't do all these things, so they get the judgment from society and maybe even arrested. I've read, I'm sure other people have read stories like this where somebody was working a McDonald's shift and let their 10-year-old play in the park next door to the McDonald's and then got in big trouble. I want to salute the person for working at McDonald's and taking their kid and doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. And instead, they're being harassed by people in their community and eventually the authorities over it. So Mm -hmm. I like the way that you're moving to create this new culture. Is there anything else that you want us as parents to know before we end our conversation? Anything else that we should be aware of? Yeah, thanks. There is. 
So Let Grow, the nonprofit, is not only trying to get schools, hoping to get schools to do the Let Grow project, but we have one other also free initiative that we recommend, and it's called the Let Grow Play Club. And that is simply takes us back to the beginning of this conversation of what you got when you were with your friends, you know, organizing a game yourself versus when you're in an organized activity. So considering that most kids after school will either go to an organized activity or they'll go home and they'll be on their electronics, is there any way to give them back a sort of old-fashioned, somebody said a childhood reenactment of sort of the olden days of making your own fun? And there is. And the Lecro Play Club is the answer. And it's just having schools stay open either before or after school for mixed age, no devices, loose parts, you know, hula hoops, chalk, soccer ball, free play. And there is an adult there because for legal reasons, and if there's a real problem, but the adult doesn't organize the games, you know, doesn't even suggest the games, there's balls, there's hula hoops, you guys will figure it out, and doesn't solve the spats. So if somebody comes up to me and I'm the adult there and they say, you know, it was my turn, but she took it. And I say, thank you very much. Thank you for letting me know. Or is this an adult problem or a kid problem or something that deflects them and makes them go back and figure it out on their own? Because then they do. And what we've heard, we had people studying this, actual academics who published papers on it, is that at first the kids keep coming to the teacher like, this isn't fair. You know, this is not the game I wanted to play. But after a couple of weeks, they don't <laughs> because they recognize that the adult is not there in the new capacity of always solving problems for kids, this culture that we've been discussing till now. And then they realize, hey, it's faster and more fun if we just do it ourselves. And then I was just at a play club, I guess about three weeks ago. And at this particular school, I'd been looking for the bathroom and I ended up finding the school psychologist and she didn't even know that there was a play club at the school. I said, come watch with me. She came out and there were a dozen boys who had organized their own game of soccer. They didn't need a coach. They didn't need a teacher. There were kids doing hula hoops. There were kids drawing. There were kids playing with these giant dice. And we stayed out there for the 45 minutes and she had tears in her eyes. And I guess I shouldn't have been so surprised because she's the school psychologist. She sees the kids who are falling apart, who are nervous, anxious, depressed, passive, don't see any joy in their lives. And then she saw the opposite. And it's really easy and it's really cheap. And, you know, I've interviewed enough kids talking about how lonely they were, especially during COVID. And here's a way for them to make friends, have fun find new friends in other grades if they don't have a friend in their grade, be good at something at school if they're horrible at math and English, but they're great at kicking a ball. It's the way that we used to balance out school and non-school. And so much of non-school time is like school. An adult is telling you what to do and telling you if you did it well or not and giving you new ways to try it. But kids need a break. And let Grow Play Club is a way to give them not only the break back, but all the stuff we were talking about at the beginning, all these social emotional skills that we want them to learn that we're worried that they're not learning. You learn automatically through the work of play. So if you're listening to this, I would suggest trying to get your school or if you're at a school, bringing this to the school and saying, hey, let's do this, the Let Grow Project and the Let Grow Play Club, because they're a one-two punch in terms of just restoring a little normalcy and independence and joy to kids. Well, Lenora, I really appreciate you spending time with us. I really respect you because you took something that maybe would have made people crumble, melt, being labeled <laughs> publicly as America or the world's worst mom. And you turned that into something good and positive. And I respect you because you're not just complaining about it. You're trying to make a difference in you and the people in your organization are trying to have real practical solutions to this problem. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I hope that everybody benefited from it as much as I did. Take care. Oh, thank you, Keith. And thank you for reading my book. So many people don't and they interview me. So thanks for that too. No, I loved your book. I loved your book and people should pick it up. It's called Free Range Kids, How Parents and Teachers Can Let Go and Let Grow. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.